The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Macy Day, is an American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists Certified Sex Therapist, a licensed professional counselor, and a certified therapist and trainer of the Hakomi Mindful Somatic Psychotherapy. Her new book is Passion and Presence, A Couple's Guide to Awakened Intimacy and Mindful Sex. You can read an insightful interview with Macy, conducted by Catherine Drury Wagner, at the Book Talk section on the Spirituality and Health website, spiritualityhealth.com. Macy Day, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rami. Well, this is going to be interesting because the book was interesting. I thought, I thought the interview in the uh, magazine was interesting. So I want to see what else I can learn from you uh, in the 20 minutes that we have. So, as you know, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, you already did this interview with Catherine mm-hmm. and you explored some of the main ideas, I think, in, in uh, Passion and Presence, your new book. And I don't want to repeat any of that. So let's start with something I don't think you really went into with her so much, and that is this uh, you know, your work as a Hakomi therapist. What What is Hakomi method and where does the word come from? What, do you sure. know what it means? Yeah, um, it came in someone's dream and then someone who has a rich library of lexiconography found out that it's a Hopi term, which means where do you stand in relation to these many realms. So that's the archaic definition. The more modern translation would be, who are you? And as a somatic approach, it's very much about letting your body answer that question because our mind is prone to so many cognitive errors and biases. So we've learned through neuroscience that the kind of processing that occurs bottom up, which is unfiltered, by the kind of mental templates that tend to organize our thoughts and help us process information, allows us to access very quickly and more deeply what is known as early emotional learning or implicit memory. So Hakomi uses mindfulness as a state throughout the therapy to access the body's knowing 
essentially uh, the kinds of things we learned without knowing it as children that continues to shape our adult behaviors. Whether they're true or not. Exactly. I mean, we learned we learned these survival techniques given our situation with the adults in our world, I guess, and our peers, whatever. So, so these are they're not set from birth, but they they evolve over what the first four years or, soon, or earlier. Yeah, you know, there's debate in the field. Does some some things happen while we're still in utero? Is there some karmic oh, thing then, that we enter right. with? Yeah, different people have different beliefs about when these imprints start to take root. But most people would say certainly from birth through mm, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, mm-hmm. And some things even get layered in much later. Certainly trauma can be layered in later. Sure, trauma. But I was thinking less about specific traumas and just more about the madness of your parents or something like that. <laughs> right. I, I have a, a five-year-old grandson and I, I guess he's figured me out. And whenever I tell him anything, he always stops and he says, is that true? Because oh. <laughs> he knows that I just make stuff up. Oh, that's know. beautiful. Well, you know, what you're speaking to is this idea that we are all living in virtual reality. And I just, I don't mean just on our computers. I mean, we function as a system that is seeing things in accord with our own belief systems all the time. So that famous expression, we're seeing things as we are rather than they are, is key to my work in Passion and Presence and Hakomi. Because for a client or a couple, whether it's objectively true or not, their experience and perceptions seem true to them. So I'm, I'm glad you're naming that true <laughs> truth is subjective. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in your book, I'm just going to quote you to yourself. Uh, you write, many researchers believe that we manufacture our reality from our sense data and the models in our memories, a process that scientists call predictive coding. Mm-hmm. I call it trance blindness. So I'm very interested in, in this idea, especially, I mean, you mentioned trance yourself just a moment ago, and I you know, tossed you the term, you came up with trance blindness. Tell me if I'm getting this right. Is trance blindness or predictive coding a necessary part of our development? but one we ultimately have to overcome? Ooh, great question. And I'm sure there's some researchers that can answer that so much better than I can, but I'll take a stab at it, my best guess. You know, so the mind has evolved, like other aspects of evolution, to support our survival. And not just our physical survival, but our ability to make predictions which actually does help us navigate and stave off certain degrees of uncertainty that may pertain primarily to our physical safety, but also this interview we're having right now, I'm not thinking before I'm speaking. And I didn't know what you were going to ask me about. But now that we're in the conversation, there's certain exchanges that humans make that that help us orient to one another so that we're we're not just every second making something up. So predictive coding says that if something approximates something else that we've had exposure to or experience with, 
if it's a close enough approximation, we act as if it's essentially the same, which is how we fail to recognize that our partner, since my work is mostly about working with couples, is changing from one day to the next because we see a, a sort of a representation that we imprinted maybe even 10 years ago, and we're still operating in accord with that mental model, that's a trance, versus a direct encounter with the person or with life or any other thing that we're um, relating to. So is that necessary? Probably. Does it get in our way sometimes? For sure. Does it help us survive? Often enough, Yes. So I, I wouldn't think that we'd want to discard the whole apparatus, but I think when we recognize that we're identified with a certain view and can see outside that view, which is what mindfulness helps us do, and people are experimenting now with plant medicine, there's other means to kind of widen the windows of perception. But when we're able to do that, we have a lot more freedom and we're in direct relationship with life. So it sounds like, I don't know, I don't have a percentage, you know, I'm just making up numbers, but let's say most of our encounters with other people and maybe other beings, animals, plants, but most of our encounters with other people are sort of habitual. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, right, we have these habits of mind, habits of heart, and we try to, I'm, I'm going to try to fit you into one of the habits. This may be happening subconsciously, but I'm going to try to fit you into one of my habits. And then I know, oh, I get it. You're X. I respond with Y. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if that's right. So how does mindfulness help free us from that? Mm, another great question. So the original purpose of mindfulness the number 2,500 years ago is cited often as the beginning of this movement that's really mushroomed, was not how it's used so much today, like to be more productive, to be more effective. Uh, it was much more about waking up so that we're in reality rather than resisting what is or in our internal mental models, though I'm sure the Buddha didn't use that language exactly. So a feature of mindfulness when we practice regularly is we start to cultivate a quality of awareness that many people call the internal observer. And a function of the internal observer is to notice what is happening moment to moment, the kinds of things that when we are in our habitual pattern, runs us automatically. So we're not really at the helm. When we're mindful, we can see those patterns starting to form. We can see our automatic impulses, the familiar repertoire we've enacted again and again, whether it's a thought process or a behavior or an emotional pattern. And we have the capacity by seeing it to potentially interrupt it or have some space between the thought and the impulse or the emotional reaction and the response. And herein lies our, our freedom. And that was what one of the qualities that um, was considered to be enlightened. Yeah, I think it's really important just to underline one of the things you just said, because people 
when we hear the word, word mindfulness all the time, and it there's been, a, at least in my estimation, there's been a kind of capitalist capture of Buddhism, where mindfulness is now in service to productivity and to being a better student, a better cog in the machine, you know, that that kind of thing. And you're really using it in the way perhaps that, that the Buddha meant it or practiced it, you know, 2,500 plus years ago. So you get this internal observer. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Mark Epstein's book, Thoughts Without a Thinker. Oh, yeah. I read that and, years ago. It was great. Yeah, it was, it's a, it's, it was and probably still is, but I haven't read it for a long time in a long time either. But what I'm thinking of is, in a, who is this internal observer? I do a lot of I don't know. I, I used to anyway. Do a lot of work in the Zen uh, Buddhist tradition, and I had a, this conversation once with uh, a, a Roshi, and I was trying to figure out how do you know when it's not ego when you're in the in, you know out of that into something great greater. So so how do you know I'm I'm not coming from habit of mind? And you know he said it's all ego, and I'm thinking in terms of the internal observer that you just mentioned. Is that part of my egoic self? Is that a separate entity? And then one, just to complicate it for our <laughs> listeners and for you, one more uh, dimension of complication, who notices the internal observer? Wow. You are making me really think, and I love it. And of course, that's almost like the koan, right? That's That's been the question forever. When you look for that part that thinks, that part that reflects that part that observes like is it there is there something solid is that just consciousness is that consciousness filtered through like what you're calling ego i can't answer those questions if i did i would really be an advanced student but what i can say i can aspire to that maybe invite me again and i'll have learned something but what i can say is that Back to this being usurped by the capitalist um, kind of machine, the intent is more to rest and be. And another trance is that bigger, better, more trance. And we sometimes think of that trance as being part of the ego because it inflates me. My My ratings go up if I've achieved more than you have. And it leads to this kind of comparing mind and that restless dissatisfaction that um, is key to Buddhism in the first place, the sense of, you know, unsatisfactoriness. So if we notice that we are observing from a judging place, from a we're not enough place, from we should be further, faster than we are, I would guess that there's some blending then with a part that we could call the ego, rather than pure awareness itself. So if we're resting in and we're observing and noticing and allowing and relatively receptive uh, and we're not grasping, I would think that would be rather unblended. Who that is, what that is, I don't know for sure. Mm. Yeah, I don't, and if, I think if you could put it into words, we would be off. Once you do that, you're probably missing it. Um, So I want to ask you, because, you know, this is not pre-scripted, so I'm just listening to you and responding. And this is one other thing that comes to me. I'd love to get your take on this that I think will be of interest to people and maybe 
a little more understandable than my prior question. Uh, in Martin Buber's theology, or not theology, philosophy of I, thou, mm -hmm. he talks about this space called between. Mm. It's when you and I, or, you know, two people, um, though it's not always just people, but anyway, when you and I are having a conversation and we step out of the, um, the, 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 the habits of heart and mind, the trance blindness that you talk about, that falls away. And I don't have a clue who you are or what to say. And you are in the same boat vis-a-vis -vis me. And so we both step into this place of not knowing. And that's where a different quality of dialogue emerges, where we're not riffing off past models, but are actually engaging with the present. That sounds like, or something like what uh, your therapy sessions are about or Hakomi is about. Absolutely. We say that you can only be a good Hakomi therapist if you can make friends with not knowing. Because, uh -huh. yeah, because all those models that diagnose behavior and anticipate and try to collect some symptoms and label them and have a ready-made treatment plan are failing to let something unfold that's unpredictable on the front end. And I'm going to locate this in the sexual conversation because that's what my book's about. I use the same concept in describing pure erotic potential. And it requires, both in the therapy and my retreat and the book of Passion and Presence, that we dispense with to the extent that a human can. That's another one of these questions. Everything is a aspiration, that we dispense with our concepts of what sex is, our expectations of how this is going to go because this is how it went the last three times, or that this is what you like and don't like. And I can memorize now, I have a little cheat sheet of the shortcut to arousal, and therefore there's nothing to discover, and sex becomes quite flat and lifeless. But if we show up on this kind of blank canvas, anything is possible state of mind, where we dispense with, it's kind of like deleting the cash, and we feel awkward, and we don't know where to go because those pathways that we have established have become like a tight choreographed dance, then the magic happens. Whether it's in the bedroom or our conversation right now or in a therapy session. I would contend that's where the magic happens. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's sort of like Suzuki Roshi's notion of beginner's mind. It's like absolutely you, yes. So it's you, you enter into your sexual into or you 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 enter into sex sexual intimacy with beginner's mind, don't know mind, you know, and it's it's all an exploration. Exactly. So that goes back to your question about predictive coding. You know, if we're living in this reality where we are in our own virtual internal movie, we're not meeting reality directly. And and that's what the original intent of mindfulness was all about. And to do that requires entering fresh, meeting, looking at, like right now, there's a water bottle in front of me, and I hadn't paid attention to it because I feel like I know what that thing is. But I could actually befriend it right now in this beginner's mind space and not only discover things, particularly if I even dispense with the idea of I know what it's for, I know where it was made, I know, you know, all the I knows and go to the don't knows. And there's actually a beautiful poem that I don't remember, unfortunately, who wrote it, but it's to know anything, you must become the thing you want to see. So if I'm joining with this thing in an unfiltered way, not knowing with the spirit of curiosity and exploration, I am bound to not only discover something, but possibly even to fall in love <laughs> because I'm going into sort of a awe state where there's something unique and special in just about anything we can encounter if we meet fresh, if we see fresh. Right. So, so. I think it makes it all the more difficult for people to even imagine that, that I, I want to learn, there's got to be a cookbook about how to be sexually intimate. I'll memorize the, the recipe and then I know what to do. And there is no moment for awkwardness. But for, if I'm hearing you right, it's the moment, if you're feeling awkward, not, not in a negative way, right? Not, not like this is wrong, but just awkward. It suggests that you're slipping from these habits into the, the not knowing place where real ecstasy could even happen. Absolutely. So Peggy Kleinplatz, who's a researcher in uh, Canada, British Columbia on optimal sexuality. I have one of her, I love her work and I have one of her quotes in my book. And she says, there's nothing that kills desire faster than the relentless pursuit of what works. So I think we all kind of want that recipe, you know, for the foolproof dish, whether it's sex, whether it's job performance, whether it's how to be an effective and functional human. Um, and as soon as we have it, if we try to repeat it over and over and over, again, the magic eludes us. Because we're not meeting the experience in such a way that Eros, in this case, can take us somewhere we've never discovered 
or even have experiences in the familiar, the kind of ecstasy that you just named. If our head is trying to remember now, what were those steps? And now your move is supposed to be that. But wait a minute, why aren't you responding this way on page 27? It says, if I touch you like this, you're supposed to get off and love it. Why are you looking at me like you're annoyed? So those those recipes are, are, are bound to fail if we want an I-thou encounter, if we want to actually meet the ever-changing now and see what's possible outside of our limiting scripts and habits. So all that makes sense to me. And I want to, we, we're, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I have a couple of big questions that I'd like to. Oh, you've been asking me the small ones, have you? <laughs> well, they're all just coming in, you know, coming to my, my mind while you're talking. I'm wondering if there, if you've noticed in your work with, because I'm assuming you work with uh, heterosexual couples, gay, lesbian, bisexual. Is that fair? Trans. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, trans, right. or gender so, non-binary. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, so, so you have experience with this. I'm wondering where the notion of predictive coding comes in when people identify as trans, bi, you know, whatever it's going to be, gay, lesbian, heterosexual. Does that kind of predictive coding have to fall away? Is that also part of trans blindness? And there's a, a not knowing even vis-a-vis your own, your own identity? Well, absolutely. And I'm not sure. So I'm, I'm going to possibly contradict myself. Again, Predictive coding is automatic. It doesn't matter how we self-identify, we do it. What a lot of people are waking up to is how gendered our sexual scripting is. And there's been some wonderful articles over the years of people saying, please don't gender me in the bedroom, meaning let's not have this, what's sometimes called gender essentialism, this um, assumption that one of us is the leader and the dominant submission model, for example, or let's not have this picture of sex that it needs to include these activities and exclude these. Peggy Ornstein, who's another hero of mine, who wrote the book Girls in Sex, found that queer people in vulva bodies um, or self-identified lesbians, they had the best time in bed. And what's been called the pleasure gap, where people who have penises tend to usually have a good time and usually have an orgasm during sex, whereas vulva body people, not quite so often, that that was not the case in queer couples, that there was not these roles or privileging one person's desire or preferences over another. It was much more collaborative and make it up as we go along. And your pleasure is my pleasure and vice versa. So the whole liberation from these old scripts, I think, can help even those who identify as heterosexual. The problem is that we enter in with some notion that sex is this, And if I can't do that anymore because my body's changed or it doesn't appeal to me, then I guess sex is off the table for us as a couple. So widening the whole sense of what is real sex anyway is one of the things I stand for and I think is starting to finally happen at large. Yeah, you you framed my question much better than I asked it. 
I, I was thinking in terms of, you know, if I'm remembering this right, Sigmund Freud's notion of polymorphous perversity, that mm. little kids before they're uh, identified as, you know, a vulva body or a penis body or, you know, whatever their, their identification is going to be, um, that they are, their entire body is an erotic zone, mm-hmm. er- erogenous zone, that, that um, you know, it, you're, you're, it's a full body thing and then society genitalizes it. Exactly. So we need to, it sounds like what you're suggesting is we need to, to get over that. Am I on the right track with this polymorphous notion? Well, yeah, I think we are one giant erogenous zone and we all learn to numb ourselves because of this ambivalence around pleasure. And that's a whole liberation movement right now too. Many people are writing and working on that as we reclaim our right to full body pleasure. So absolutely over time, whether it's being in a sex negative culture or the way we're gendered or um, shame that we have around our body, there start to be places that the lights just go off. They're kind of like areas that we lose sensitivity around. And another benefit of mindfulness that Lori Brado has researched extensively uh, in her lab, the sexual health lab in British Columbia as well, is how even people who are recovering from radical genital surgery around cancer, so a lot of internal organs have been removed and there's a lot of scar tissue and there's numbness, like what used to be alive and tingly and full of sensation feels dead, like somebody could be just I don't know, touching a piece of cardboard, that they recover their ability to feel even more subtle sensations and in a nuanced way by training attention to what sensations accompany arousal and tuning into the whole body through body scans on a regular basis. So yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Let me ask you one last question. And like all of these, it's sort of broad, but you know, this, the, the magazine is spirituality and health. And I want to just ask you a, a question about spirituality. It, my, my sense of American spirituality is it's very puritanical. It, it's often disembodied. Uh, there's even a fear of the body and sexuality in, in, in certain I don't want to overstate it, but you know, in many and many spiritual circles, the body is the problem. And I'm wondering what you think about the of, of the link between sexual intimacy and ecstasy, you know, sexual ecstasy with spirituality. Mm-hmm. I love that question. Although I, 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 a little flag goes up a little bit around making ecstasy a benchmark, because what creates so much sexual anxiety and performance anxiety for us is this notion that sex should be great every time. It should be earth-shaking. Fireworks should go off. And if we have a met experience, which is quite common, like research shows that, I don't know, 20% of the time we might have what we would consider to be ecstatic sex. And a good 50 is fine, satisfying, and maybe 
20% is um, okay. And five to 15% is downright like disappointing and triggering as heck. So a mindful approach welcomes it all. It starts to breed acceptance for the full range of our sexual experience. And therein for me is the way the erotic portal can be a spiritual path because we start to befriend and embrace elements of the human experience with acceptance and with compassion. We start to become wiser. We have more freedom. So all of these qualities that we usually consider as someone pretty far along on the spiritual path. Now, to your question about the body being denigrated and our puritanical culture basically creating these fundamental splits between the right kind of sex and the wrong kind and what is morally depraved and what is sanctioned in a good way. We have a lot of confusion around that. And many people feel that the body is the conduit and channel to our connection with something greater than ourselves, that that's where we reclaim our wholeness and our sense of mystery and that expansive, heartful, non-dual, non-egoic kind of state. Now, again, I don't, I don't say that that's what we should all be shooting for. And if you, you know, don't get a slam dunk there, then you're not having spiritual sex because I think that we can experience spirituality in any kind of sex and that it's not the kind of sex we're having or the amount of pleasure we're experiencing, but the quality of our attention and our ability to allow what is occurring to unfold from within and between us as, you know, we could say, Eros shapeshifts from one moment to the next. And when we start to go into that kind of improvised call and response, we're in what we could call, again, that state of pure possibility that is closer to in a way, I don't know, something that is innocent and pure and holy. So I think there's many pathways, and I think sexuality can be a spiritual practice that may lead to states of ecstasy and bliss and may lead to other kinds of states that we embrace in the whole human story of which sex has always been a core part. That is a perfect way to end this conversation. Mm. Our guest today was Macy Day. She's the author of Passion and Presence, A Couple's Guide to Awakened Intimacy and Mindful Sex. You can learn more about Macy's work at MacyDay.com. And you can read Catherine Wagner's interview with Macy in the book talk section at SpiritualityHealth.com. Macy Day, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. I absolutely loved it. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings. 
and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.